Uh, most of you know Alan, but there's some that may be newer members that uh, Alan was our senior pastor here from 88 to 97. Uh, he now has a ministry uh, called The Word Is Out uh, in, in uh, Africa, and now uh, looks like we're going to be doing some work in Myanmar with that. But uh, uh, the, the work that he does is making a real change in a continent because he's training indigenous Christian pastors in Africa on how to really properly study and preach the Bible. And uh, that word is spreading. Uh, several of us, uh, as I mentioned, Jim Dosh was part of that group, went to Africa for one of the conferences and worked with the pastors there. And it's amazing how, how well that's uh, going there. And I will say this, the church is alive and well in Africa and honestly much more so than in Europe and America right now. And so uh, anyway, we're blessed to have Alan here this morning. Thanks, Dan. Turn it on. Is that on now? Oh, oh, it's really on. <laughs> wow. Let me just... Uh, um, kind of bring you up to speed with um, with where we are as a family and so on because a lot of you have been asking and and then where we are as a ministry and what's going on. Um, it's been over a year since I've been back and I love, 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 love coming to Amarillo. Um, I was sad that I couldn't uh, get here sooner but as most of you probably know I was having difficulty walking and standing. I couldn't walk more than about 50 yards and couldn't stand for more than about five minutes, and so I thought that I needed a hip replacement, but it turned out that uh, I was having, I needed back surgery. Um, so I decided uh, not to have an African neurosurgeon work on my back, because <coughs> I'm not sure there are any neurosurgeons there in the first place, but if there were, you know, it's kind of like, uh, I remember one time going to the hospital at High Plains, and uh, I was having chest pain, um, and uh, uh, the, the little doctor came out. He was from Cuba. I don't remember his name. But he said, Pastor, I have some good news for you and some bad news for you. He said, what would you like first? This is true. <laughs> and he said, I, I said, I would like the good news first. And he said, the good news is you're in the hands of our lovely Lord Jesus. <laughs> and I remember I looked at him and I said... I'm in big trouble. You know. <laughs> but it turned out to be fine, but that was kind of interesting. So uh, the neurosurgeon is, is in Los Angeles, and he worked on Elizabeth Taylor's brain. So he did the tumor, you know, got the tumor out of her brain. So I thought if he could work on Elizabeth Taylor, he could certainly. He'd probably be good enough to work on my back, <laughs> which he did. And the, the surgery went fine. There were complications that kind of, I was out of out of uh, life in many ways for a couple months but um, but now I can walk and run and um, stand for a long time I was preaching on a stool kind of like a rabbi you know I like that <laughs> but um, 
but now so I, it's, it's, he's, he's done a great job and I feel absolutely wonderful like 20 years of road off don't I look like I'm 20 years younger <laughs> now, now don't lie Anyway, it's delightful to be back. Vicky is said to me as I was getting on the plane, she said, I wish I was going with you. Um, and I said, well, if you told me two months ago or a month ago when I was invited to go, um, you know, I could have afforded to bring you, but you can't tell me last minute that you want to go because it's too late, it's too expensive. So she sends her love. Um, when, I told, when she told Katie, your dad's going to Amarillo, uh, Katie, who is in Versailles, France, said... Uh, I want to go to Amarillo. So, you know, they all want to come, which is kind of nice, because I think they think of this as home. This is where I spent most of the years of my ministry. Um, so it was it's special. So Katie also sends her love. She's got three little girls. Um, so we have three granddaughters, five years old, two years old, and one year old. And her husband, who's a Frenchman, says it's the curse of the meanings, you know, three <laughs> girls. <clears throat> when Katie came home and said, Dad, I'm going to marry a Frenchman, my reaction was, well, there are probably worse things in the world than marrying a Frenchman. <laughs> but for the life of me, I can't think of one. <laughs> um, Kimberly married a uh, Swiss man. And I said to Vicky, why, why, why are our girls marrying all these foreigners? And Vicky looked at me disbelievingly and she went, duh. <laughs> so anyway, they're all doing well. Kelly, um, <clears throat> Kelly is the only one in America. She's in Palm Springs, about 10 miles from us. And uh, she's really doing well. She's got a job. She's happy. Um, she's got a little dog that she dotes on. Drives us bonkers. But, you know, um, so they're all doing well. Kimberly's doing well in, in Germany. And uh, this Christmas, they're all coming home, all of them. So that's the first time we've been together. Well, home is California, yeah. Half the year we spend in California, half the year we spend in Africa. That's what compromise is all about when you get married, isn't it, guys? I mean, you just kind of, you know, I would want to spend more time in Africa. But for Vicky, it's a sacrifice to go there. She does not like Africa. And, and after all these years, you know, you would think that she would kind of, no, she just, you know, just, she doesn't know what to do with herself in Africa, so, whereas I've got tons of things to do, but anyway. Um, but, you know, she obviously loves me enough to spend half of the year in a place that she's not fond of, but uh, anyway, that's kind of an update on the family. They're all doing really, really well. Um, you know, Kelly was, um, when we were here, Kelly was uh, uh, the, the Achilles heel in our family. You know, we kind of wrestled with that. And, but now she, you know, she loves the Lord. And she's, uh, she goes around talking to people about all these kids, about, you know, don't get on drugs and all the rest of it. So she's, we're really proud of her. She's doing really well. And they're all doing good. So we're looking forward to having them for Christmas. Vicky's already, you know, thinking of putting the Christmas tree up. You know, she's she's playing Christmas music all the time. <laughs> Seriously, I'm not joking. I mean, I'm just, you know, by the time Christmas comes around, I'll wish it was Easter. <laughs> anyway, um, 
The ministry of the Word is Out is uh, going well. Um, in fact, we have an amazing center in uh, Zambia run by an indigenous pastor, and it's thriving. It's really doing well. We have good work going on in Kenya, and we have a champion that we're bringing to America to train for Myanmar, which is, you know, it's in Burma, um, or you call it Burma or Myanmar, whatever. And so we're going to be establishing a center in a Buddhist, 90%, 95% Buddhist country. Um, so that's good. I live in the midst of 90% Muslims, um, and we've established a really great ministry there. And it's thriving and growing. I mean, we, 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 we do conferences which attracts hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pastors. Um, but that's not the end result. We, just, we do that basically to create interest, and then we select people from the hundreds to train, um, and, uh, and from there we go to, uh, to in-depth study. We, we, we train them into you know, the methods of Bible study and what to look for, how to study the Scripture most profitably, and how they can preach it. Um, because the situation in throughout the world, uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the church is growing by leaps and bounds. Fastest growing religion by conversion. In Africa alone, we're adding 22,000 people to the church every day, 365 days a year. It works out at 22,000 every day joining the church. Now that's amazing. And uh, we don't have pastors. So pastors, you know, coming out the woodwork, the gazoo, they're just they're coming out the gazoo. And they're not, they're not trained, and they, you know, they just, and they're, they're preaching heresy at times. Um, I was recently flew to Nigeria. They threw me out of the country. They threw me out of the country. I didn't get into Nigeria. I flew all the way to Nigeria, and they couldn't, wouldn't let me in because there was some um, miscommunication between the university that I was teaching in and the immigration people. And they knew that I was a Christian pastor and that I was going to be teaching in the university and, and uh, the leadership there were, were Muslims. So that was, they didn't want me in there. So. But on the way back, I sat beside a Nigerian evangelist and he started telling me stuff about how God makes people sick and how God pe- makes cripples and how God makes blind people. And I'm saying, where in heaven's name do you get that from? And he'd got a little obscure verse in Exodus, and he completely took it out of context. So I tried to explain to him how you know you need to study the Bible contextually. Everything is you know has a function within a broader unit. Um, for six hours, I talked to him. He preaches prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel is ubiquitous in Africa. It is absolutely everywhere. Um, and he was telling me, you know, that uh, just, you know, I was asking for justification. And why do you preach that? And, and he said, well, it's because, um, you know, passages like when Peter said, you know, I've given up everything to follow you, Jesus. I've given up home. I've given up family, everything that, you know. And God said, well, all that will be given back to you and more. Remember the passage? So he said, there you are, prosperity gospel. So I said to him, how did that work for Peter? all you say how does that work for Peter you know yeah do you remember the big beautiful semi-detached house he had up on the hill and you know ten wives and you know millions of dollars 
He said, no, he didn't do that. I said, no, he didn't do that. He was crucified upside down. He did nothing. So don't tell me this is this prosperity. Oh, I see. Okay. But, so, you know, it's, it's, I mean, we laugh at that, and, but it's, it's really serious. That's what's happening in Africa. That's what's happening in Asia. You just, you have, you have a growth of the church. They say 130,000 people join the church every day somewhere in the world. And it's happening mostly in Asia, Africa, South America. Um, so we need to do something. We need to help them. And, uh, and, you know, the interesting thing for me is that, you know, in, in the kind of ministry that we're doing, you know, I can't hold a little starving child up and say, you know, um, or a hospital or a school, you know, because, you know, people give to that easily. And, and we need those. We need orphanages and we need hospitals and we need schools. But, you know, we, I think this is the greatest need for Africa that we help their pastors understand God's word. I said to, uh, to someone yesterday that, um, you know, that neurosurgeon who fixed my back, um, I mean, I think that's an important job he has. But what I do is infinitesimally more important than what he does. Because if the Bible really, really is God's word, we all say it, of course, but if we really, really believe that, then understanding it aright has got to be the most important thing in the whole world. Nothing more important than that. And that's what uh, my privilege and I of doing and training other people to do that. And so we have these centers that we're establishing. Um, but, you know, th- for me the sad thing is that while we're graduating scores of pastors, um, which is encouraging, and, you know... I, it didn't occur to me, frankly, when we started that, uh, you know, I, I, you know I, I'm just a preacher, you know. I'm not a bit, I mean, church administration was always, so those of you, some of you remember, that's why I relied so much in, on so many of you to run the church. Um, it was never something that I really enjoyed. Uh, but, you know, it's just... Um, this this whole enterprise that uh, engaging people in studying, we've got to. Um, how can I say this? Um, when I first realized the need to help these pastors, um, it didn't occur to me that uh, if it was successful, it would require even more money. I mean, that's kind of stupid, isn't it? Because I'm not business-oriented. Um, I just thought we would do this. And, and God has been so gracious in supplying every need. But now we're seeing more and more centers, and the ministry is a success. Um, that uh, all of a sudden, the needs are even multiplied uh, so that we can reach more. Because graduating scores of people... Um, when there are tens of thousands of pastors out there, it's just a drop in the ocean. And I long to be able to do more. Now, I've had an invitation from Asbury Theological Seminary, one of my alma maters, to become a, an adjunct professor, online professor, so that I would be teaching online, uh, which is good because I may not have to travel so much then. Um, 
you know, I get on these planes, get off these planes, and think, you know, I'm getting too old for this kind of stuff. And, um, but so I'm, I w- it looks like I'll be teaching online, and that will be beamed to Africa and Asia and so on. So we'll see how that goes. So everything is good. And I, I thought, oh, our time's almost gone. Um, <laughs> typical me. Um, I said to someone the other day, I just, I love to talk. You know, when I was a kid, I brought entire worship services to a halt. Did I ever tell you that? I brought entire worship services to a halt. See, my parents were not believers. They sent me to church. I went when it wasn't raining. No, I went when it was raining. When I wasn't raining, I went and played football. I mean, soccer. I mean, the real football. The, the, the one you play with your feet. Um, and my mother used to, you know, see my scuffed shoes. My mother was a very wise lady. She would say to me, oh, how was church? And I would say, oh, it was, it was good. I hadn't been. What did the preacher preach about? So I had to come up with quick three-point sermons, <laughs> which I think is the beginning of my preaching career. <laughs> but because I wasn't there and because a parent wasn't with me, I would sit and, you know, I'd giggle and laugh and, you know, misbehave right in the front pew. And preachers, it was very distracting. I mean, I, my heart goes out now to understand these guys, you know, and what they had to put up with. Or I was with my friends there, and we were doing all kinds of stuff that shouldn't be doing. And the preacher would stop, and he would just glare at us, eh? until we kind of quietened down. And then adults would get up, and they'd come and sit between us to stop us from. So I, I realized that the only way I'm going to be able to talk in church is to become the preacher. <laughs> what I did, I guess. Um, what I thought I would do for the few minutes remaining, because um, the word, you really don't understand the Word is Out unless you've experienced. Now, how many in this room went to any of the Word is Out classes? Wow. Wow. Okay. People who don't, have never been to the class, it's hard for them to grasp what, what we do. Um, and uh, Stan has, has been encouraging me to you know, consider maybe coming for a weekend and doing a crash course. I don't know if, um, it, would you come? Yes. Um, if we, did someone say no? <laughs> oh, 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 okay. <laughs> you know, we could do maybe a, a Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon kind of a crash course. on. But I just thought to give you an inkling or to remind some of you who were um, and I'm not going to be able to get through it all, but uh, if you would just like to see the kind of thing that, that we, we do with these pastors, um, just to give you an idea. Um, so just, uh, is that something you'd be interested in doing? So we just have a quick look. We've just got a few moments. But to, to walk them through, for example, um, Hebrews chapter 12. What we do is teach them to analyze a particular book. So we tell them that any passage must be understood within the book as a whole. You know, you, you don't pick up uh, a novel and, and just turn to the middle somewhere and read a few verses or a few pages, you know. You, you, don't, you don't turn to the end of the book in a mystery book to see who did the murder, or at least you shouldn't, um, before you read the plot, right? But yeah, well, so we, we do that in the Bible. We pick little verses here and little verses there. And you miss the message of the writer. So we train people to look for the message of the entire, of the entire book. 
John had a purpose in writing his, his, his gospel. He even said, I'm writing these things in order you might believe. So he has got an agenda. Um, Luke, uh, Paul, they all have their agendas so that a book needs to be understood as a whole. So the book of Hebrews, for example, begins with a general statement, you know, now God has spoken to us by his son. And he begins to talk about, you know, exactly what, what is involved in that. He says he's the son, he's the creator and heir. He shares fully in the divine nature. He's the master of the universe. He provided purification for sins. He sits the place of supreme honor. So basically, he defines the son. That's his starting point. And then from a definition of the son, he moves on from the general statement of the first few verses into the understanding of what the, the particular, what we call substantiations. How those center chapters basically answer the question of the nature of the son. So we train them to, to understand the entire biblical witness or of a particular writer. And then the causative result so that at the end of the book, basically he is saying, I'm teaching you all these things. I, you know, here, here's God has revealed himself in his son, Jesus. Who on earth is Jesus? This is who he is. This is what he's done. And I'm doing all this for this purpose, which he ends the book by saying that you may do his will. That's the purpose of the book. So the whole book breaks down into the substantiations, basically expands upon the person of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. His power, divinity, majesty, authority, superiority, transcendence, and the finality of his revelation. So, the class that I just finished on the book of Hebrews, we had about a dozen pastors in that class. And, uh, you know, it's, I mean, it's heavy stuff. And, and it's a three-hour class once a week. And they have homework. And, and when they finish their homework, they send their homework via... Um, uh, online uh, to America where I have an assistant who does all the grading she grades it she sends all the grades back to me and she sends all the comments and I give them back to the students and you know Vicky uh, decided she would sit in you know but after about the third session she says this, uh, this is above my head I'm just you know I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just this is my faith is very simple and you know I don't want to stretch myself too much I mean this is okay <laughs> I like what I believe. Don't confuse me. You know, just, just. And she said, besides, these people have no idea what you're doing. You know, you're talking way above their head. Well, I then took some of their homework assignments, took them home to show her how they were grasping. What they were doing was excellent work. So they do the work before we teach it. So they, for example, would do chapter 12. They would take a week studying chapter 12 and they would come to class with all their papers, which we would send off to Kentucky. And, um, and then I would teach chapter 12. And I would ask them, you know, how did you find this? What did you see? What did you see the writer doing? And w the kind of work that they're doing is really, really amazing. My students in India, I, c I commented to them that they were grasping this stuff better than I did when I was a student first learning it um, because they were really they were sharp um, so you know it's uh, so basically we've, the first seven chapters have to do with the supremacy of Christ chapters 8 through 12 the superiority of Christianity and the causative result in chapter 13 so basically when you get to chapter 12 um, uh, what we're talking about is, is the ending section of 
the superiority of Christianity. And uh, before we get into the practical parts of chapter 13, uh, the end of chapter 12, you know, after having, having gone through it, you know, faith is the, um, what is it? The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I used to think that Hebrews 11 was just examples of people of faith. But when we looked at it, it wasn't examples. It was illustrations of the first verse. How each of them, there were things hoped for, there were things not seen. And again and again, as we went through it, we had this remarkable deja vu. This isn't about this. These are not examples of faith. These are illustrations of verse 1. How each of them, there was no evidence that they could see but something that they hoped for. You know, in the Bible, of course, when the word they use, hope, it's not the way we use the word hope. You know, uh, we would say we hope that the Texas Longhorns win the game, for some of you. Yeah. You kind of hope. But when the Bible uses hope, it's a confidence. You know? Um, the illustration I like to use is the little dog that I used to have uh, when I would come home. You know, the little dog used to jump up. So I trained him not to jump up, to wait. So I walked into the house. The little dog, you know, would, would sit there and wag its tail because it knew any moment, as soon as I said, it's okay, he would jump up into my arms. Um, it was that anticipation, that confidence, that knowledge, that, that you know, this is going to happen kind of thing. So... Um, so chapter 11, so we, we, we said, we distilled, you know, what, what, what do we learn about faith? And so very quickly, you know, we went through seven things that chapter, that chapter 7, after we distilled it, after we understood it, after we'd taken each example and see how it related to verse 1, we then draw, drew these conclusions, you know, that, that faith is essentially the conviction that the invisible God are as real and indeed more real than the visible. That faith is indispensable for all realization of goodness and blessing. There's congruence between faith and action. That faith doesn't guarantee deliverance from suffering. On the contrary, it often leads to suffering. That faith affirms the possibility of the miraculous. That faith is no respecter of persons. And finally, that, that there is an essential continuity between faith in the Old Testament and, and that presently in the Christian community. So these were the kind of things that we drew from that the, that the pastors themselves helped formulate. These are the things we learn about faith. Now then, they can go and preach a sermon on faith that is biblically based, is accurate to Scripture, and they can preach it with passion, with a conviction, knowing that, you know, that they are, in fact, when they get up in the pulpit, they can say, thus says the Lord. Not, not thus says Jimmy or thus says Gene. Thus says God. This is, this is God's word. And that's where we're, where we're aiming to get to. So when it comes then to into chapter 12, you have the illustrations of faith in chapter 11, which leads into chapter 12, which basically, again, I divide it into two sections. The first one is an appeal to persevere and then appeal the appeal of worship. So that's where the, you see where the writer is going with all this. And we're trying to follow the mind of the writer. Always we're asking the question, you know, what is here? Because the tendency in Bible study is, what is the meaning of what is here, right? Everybody wants to know the meaning of what is here. Everyone becomes an interpreter. But there's a prior question that everyone seems to miss. 
And I, and I don't mean to offend your sensibilities, but the prior question, before you can ask what is the meaning of what is here, you need to ask the question, what is here? Yes? But you know, theologians don't ask that question. They want to know the meaning. So we're training these pastors to answer the question, what is here? Because you can never get to the meaning of what is here unless you understand what is here. So that's why they, you know, we, we teach them to analyze these books and to get excited about the, the analysis and to see what God is doing. And, and so it's very much a training in terms of giving them the tools for understanding. So in the appeal to persevere, you know, they, they decided, I with them, came up with the fact that there were the major divisions were appeal to persevere and the appeal of worship. And then there were divisions, the division of discipline and the division of striving. And the subdivisions of considering Christ and children of God. And striving were exhortations to keep going, to look at the goal, welfare of the church. The appeal to worship, we also saw two senses, a, a new paradigm and a solid foundation with a warning. And then we asked, what is the relationship between these? What is the writer doing? Why is he doing this? Um, and so, you know, uh, that, that's why when we came to understand all those uh, examples or what we thought were examples in chapter 11, we began to see, you know, they're really not examples. They're really illustrations of a profound truth that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And again and again, each story, each person was an illustration of that profound truth. And so what the writer is doing is not simply giving a list of examples. He's driving home the point that faith, you're not going to see evidence. But the hope is foundational and is confident. It is something you can depend on. And that's the message of chapter 11. Not just a nice litany of, of people who did, who did well. And then, very quickly, you know, we... Uh, we pointed out that there was what we call a hortatory pattern, you know, cause and effect, which causes, brings another cause, brings another effect. And, you know, what we had basically was an argument, an exhortation, argument, exhortation, that runs through the entire chapter. That's why one builds on the other and then that uh, spirals off into another direction. And so, yeah, they were grasping this. You can understand why Vicky decided to leave the class, you know? But those who stuck in there, and by the way, they all stuck in except one pastor, and he dropped out. And, you know, we were sad that he would drop out, but it was, it was getting, with all the pastoral responsibilities and so forth, he just felt that he couldn't put the kind of time, because it's very time-consuming. And they say to me, you know, this is time-consuming. And I say, yes, but don't your people deserve this? Do the people of God not deserve this kind of study that goes on in your study before you get up to proclaim God's word? Don't they deserve this? Because, you know, I mean, dare I say this? I remember when I was in Hollywood, um, the, the General Assembly of the PCUSA, of which you're no longer part, and neither am I, um, but uh, the General Assembly selected about 30 of the largest churches in the nation, of which Hollywood was one, and invited all the pastors just to come and spend time together. 
So we went and we spent a night or two. And the theme was sermon preparation. <coughs> we were all sitting around these tables and they started over here and they started going around and said, how long do you spend on sermon preparation? Now, you need to know that these are the 20 or 30 largest churches in the PCUSA, in the nation. And the pastors were saying, well, I, I, I start on a Saturday night. And pastors were saying, well, you know, I, maybe six hours, you know. And uh, it was going around like this. And, you know, some of them were just putting together blessed little thoughts. I mean, they would just look up, you know, there are now, there are now websites for sermons you can copy. You know? And I was astounded. Because, you know, I was spending, I mean, when I started ministry, you know, I was spending 40 hours just in my sermon. Easily 40 hours. And by the time I was here, I was working maybe 25 hours on a sermon. Just on the sermon. Never mind the Wednesday study and all the rest of it, but 25 hours, easily 25 hours. And so I started getting, you know, kind of hot onto the collar because they were spending five hours and three hours and six hours and they would go online and all of a sudden, you know, it's coming around closer to me and I'm thinking, oh my, you know, I don't want to tell them because they'll say, well, you're such a goody-goody or whatever, you know what they mean, just you think you're better than us kind of thing. And of course, I didn't think anything like that. But I was, I was astounded that the biggest, the pastors of the biggest churches in America spend so little time. So my pastors, well, you know, when we go through this study, they'll say, you know, this takes a lot of time. And I say, yeah, it does. It takes a lot of time. But this is what God's people deserve and need. They need pastors who are going to do that. They're going to spend this time. And so that's kind of where they were. So, you know, going through the, the entire chapter, we, we began to see how the, how the writer put these things together. How he moves from cause to effect, which, which raises another cause to effect, which raises another cause to effect. And so he makes his argument as he goes, as he goes through it. Um, and then they appeal to persevere um, on the basis of what had gone before, the illustrations of faith. Seeing them, we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings or entangles us. And we pointed out that, you know, the, 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 um, the literary technique that the writer's using is what we call causation, particularization, and explanation. And, and therefore, you know, he was saying two things. One, let us lay aside every weight. And he was saying, let us run the race before us with perseverance. So he was talking about action, manner. He was saying something negatively and something positively. To make the positive even more positive, he contrasted it with a negative. So, I mean, negatively stated. It's, it's that we must lay aside every weight. That's the, the, the negative aspect. And positively, let us run the race before us. And, and the, 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 the continuation is that we would look on to Jesus, who is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. By pioneer, he meant the beginning of the faith. By perfecter, he meant the end of our faith. And for the joy that was set before him. Now you'll notice the contrast, the joy set before him with let us run the race before us. So we contrasted and they began to see the contrast between before us and before him and what that meant. 
Um, so, uh, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, he despised its shame, and sat at God's right hand. So those were the causation. And so you've got the motive for the joy set before him and the actions. He endured the cross, he despised its shame, and he sat at God's right hand. So the reader then is exhorted to follow in the footsteps of these Old Testament people of faith and to follow ultimately the example of Jesus. So what is happening is actually chapter 11 shouldn't end where it ends. You know, of course, that it was later years that people came and put in, you know, verse numbers and chapter numbers uh, as a way of simply referencing, you know, where you can go to find something. But sometimes they got it wrong. And here they got it wrong because ultimately the greatest illustration of faith is not Abraham and Moses and all the others, but no less a person than Jesus Christ himself. And so he leads into that in chapter 12, which should in fact be the end of chapter 11. It just gives you kind of a a spattering, because our time is gone, um, of the kind of thing that we do. So it's pretty intense you know, it's not second grade stuff. You know, I mean, this, this would be comparable to a seminary education. Um, uh, we're all apologetic about that because that's what Africa needs. That's what the people of God needs. That's what Asia needs. And that's what we're trying to do. So um, I just thank you for your support. Uh, it means the world to me. And um, if you could just see... Uh, these pastors, the Africa team sat in on one of the classes and uh, they were kind of really bowed over by what they saw. And when Africans worship, by the way, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, I miss Africans worship. Um, and even Jim Doosh, um at the end of the conference when, when we were singing hymns, Jim was you know, going... <laughs> Can you imagine him doing that? It was just great. You know, I, t- I, told, I told them, you know, I t- uh, this two Sundays ago when I left Africa, uh, they had me preach, and I told them, I said, I'm going to miss your worship. I said, have you ever noticed that we white people, you know, we stand like the Rock of Gibraltar when we're worshiping, you know, like we just lost a kidney. <laughs> uh, whereas, th- I mean, they, they're moving all over the place. They just can't stand still. I love it. Now, I stand still. I'm just too self-conscious, you know, to, to do that. But I love them all moving all around me. They're all dancing and they're all singing and celebrating and I'm standing there like, you know, like an iceberg. Um, but I said to them, you need to understand, you see, when I was a kid in church, if I started wiggling about, an adult would come and say, don't move. Or I remember my mother, when the occasional time she went to church, she would say, you got ants in your pants? You know? We were trained not to move. So that's why we sound like icebergs when we're worshiping. I wish I could take you to Africa um, and just let you, uh, let you see how, how it is. Um, the passion is there. Um, the desire is there. The content is not. And that's what we're trying to rectify. So thank you for your support in helping us do that. So, Stan? Curious. Do you do all of your preaching in English or 
What other languages are you fluent? Uh, I, I've lost, you know, I've, in the course of my life, I've lo- I've learned nine languages, but I've lost fluency in almost all of them. And Vicky will tell you, even in English, I've probably lost fluency <laughs> in that as well. But um, I know a little bit of Swahili, but not enough to preach in. Um, Swahili is is a very easy language, you know. When they sing in English and in Swahili, but it's all projected, and Swahili is easy to read, you know. So, I mean, I can read Swahili and sing Swahili. I haven't a clue what I'm singing. But they look at me and they think, oh, he must know Swahili. I mean, let's just look at them. He's singing all these Swahili songs. But it's easy to do because it's such a simple thing. But no, I preach in English. I teach in English. Um, I'm, I'm still learning Swahili. Uh, but, you know, if you notice the older you get, the harder it is to learn a language. You know, just keeping, keeping it all in your mind is kind of hard. Anyway, Stan. Um, as Alan mentioned, uh, I was one of the ones on the team, and, and uh, I had the privilege of actually going to two of, of the extended in-depth classes that uh, on uh, the two Mondays that I was there in uh, Kenya, and uh, 15 pastors, and uh, it was uh, a real enlightenment to me as to how this thing really is working and uh, he's just given you a, a brief sketch of an overview of it but uh, that's as uh, time has passed and we've been thinking about needs and so forth and getting people to understand really what we're doing is why uh, he and I've been talking about uh, the possibility of having uh, a weekend uh crash course, if you, if you will. Um, Alan, you may or may not have figured out, he, he's, he's not comfortable asking people for money. And none of us are. But uh, I am going to ask you all something. Uh, if you'll notice on the tables, and the, uh, if there's not enough for everybody or you didn't get one, there's two stacks uh, of two pages. Uh, in, in the back there on the, t- on the uh, table by the door. And I really would appreciate it if you would take both of those. And I'm not going to ask you to give till the word is out. I'm going to ask you to seriously, prayerfully consider whether God would be leading you to give money to the word is out. As Alan mentioned, the success is definitely creates a need. This this ministry cannot be supported financially from within the continent of Africa. It just, you know, it's not there. They they give what they can, but it's not enough. To, uh, you know, it's a lot for them, but. But it's, it's a pit, it would be a pittance for us and what the needs are. Uh, he mentioned the one in Zambia. That brings up a new level of cost when we, when we open one of the centers for biblical understanding. And we're, we're bringing another champion to America. This church supported uh, uh, for two years the living expenses for a champion. And... 
But the game plan is, at the end of two years, there's going to be another Center for Biblical Understanding established. That takes money to operate, and we've got to pay that person, the, uh, you know, just like we have to pay pastors here in, in America. So what I'd like for you to do is take this with you, pray about it. We have a great need right now. Most of the, most of the support that has been raised has been in the form of one-time gifts or some major gifts uh, at year end in December or, or whatever, you know, as, as is typically the case. But we have a need for sustained giving, ongoing giving, because the, the expenses are there month to month. And so that's what I would encourage you to pray about. Would God lead you to make some kind of a commitment to make a monthly contribution to the Word is Out? And it can start off small, and as you see what we're doing, you may be led to give more. Some of you are able to give more than others. These are things that you need to pray about and decide if God is asking you to do this. The, uh, I ask you to do it, you know, for married couples. You all pray about this together because it's a, it's a group decision in, in a marriage. And if, if you're just an individual right now, Pray about that and just see where God leads you with that. But anyway, I, uh, I, we appreciate you all coming today. I know uh, it's been a blessing uh, to, to each of us. And uh, hopefully you've, you can leave here with a little bit better understanding of what this ministry is all about. Can you close us with a quick word of prayer? Yeah, let me just say also that, uh, that I'm in the fortunate position that I do not receive a salary from the Word of Sight. Uh, I mean, my expenses are paid in terms of travel and so forth, but, um, you know, because I've worked so long within the Presbyterian Church, I get um, uh, a pension um, that, that basically covers my needs and Vicky's needs. So, uh, you know, the money, if this money goes directly to the actual work. So, um, just to let you know that. Um, can I bless you? Okay. The Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace that you might live in peace experience peace and the joy that comes from knowing him. Amen. Thanks for coming. God bless you all.